Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. Davenport in Provincetown, today on Scribble. Welcome to Scribbles, 30 minutes of conversation, comments, and reviews on reading and writing, editing, publishing, and selling books. I'm Don Wooten. Rebecca Wee is off today. But Marcia Noe is here. She spent decades studying three Davenport play routes. She'll tell us about them on Scribble. I meant play rights. Not play rots. <laughs> <laughs> Marcia, it's been a while. Yes. And the thing that amazes me is we have swapped locations. You went from Rock Island to Tennessee. Right. I went from Tennessee to Rock Island. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you were uh, you were a student at Alman when I was teaching. Yes. And. Uh, you you've taken a very interesting career path. What all have you been up to since you left? Well, I was educated at Marquette University, uh, an English major. I did graduate work at University of Iowa, and then I taught at Blackhawk College here in Moline for 17 years. And then I uh, got a job at the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga, and I've been there ever since 1986. That's amazing, you know, that uh, I'd, I've been to Chattanooga just once. Mm -hmm. Actually just kind of drove through, but I was impressed by that big hill they have there. That's uh, quite, a, quite something to see. You once wrote something about uh, something in Knoxville. I did. Uh, I, I was actually in Knoxville because I was taking a Portuguese class to prepare for my Fulbright in Brazil, which I did in 1993, long time ago. <laughs> and uh, I, I think the article was Culture Shock in Knoxville. Yeah. And I just was impressed with how uh, different the Knoxville vibe was from the Chattanooga vibe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you get into eastern Tennessee— and it's a whole different thing from Western Tennessee. Oh, very much so. Oh, yeah. If you go from the delta to the hills and uh, everything changes. But that's, I'm impressed with this book that you put out. Let's see. It's called Three Midwestern, Three Midwestern Playwrights, How Floyd Dell, George Cram Cook, and Susan Glassbell Transformed American Theater. That's a that's an amazing thought that there were three people from Davenport mm. who were not just playwrights they were social activists they were, they did all sorts of things they did all sorts of things and Davenport really played a key role in their becoming playwrights and in the kind of theater group they put together in 1915 which was the Provincetown Players 
Uh, all three were charter members, as was Eugene O'Neill, their most famous playwright. And uh, because they were socialist activists and free thinkers, because of their uh, Davenport involvement in progressive uh, activities, they developed a communal collective theater group in which which was very collaborative. Everybody was who was a member was supposed to read the plays and vote on the plays that they did. Uh, the playwright was supposed to superintend his own production and uh, rehearse the cast, and uh, so it was. It was very much uh, a communal effort, uh, inspired by George Cram Cook and his uh, two things: his interest in. Uh, Greek theater and how that arose from religious ritual into a very communal kind of celebration. He, he And his socialist uh, activities, which also gave him a real sense of uh, the importance of community and collectivism. And he wanted a theater that he called a beloved community of life givers. And community was really the, his emphasis. He wasn't so he wasn't so interested in product, although the players did come up with some pretty amazing plays. As in process, he he saw playwriting and and theater making as as kind of a cultural social activity which would make society better. You know that it's interesting that he was so fascinated by Greek theater because I got hooked on that too. Right, I yeah. know. <laughs> I was in I was in the Frogs one year at the Genesius <laughs> Guild and also in the Comedians, the the St. Genesius play. Oh yeah. And uh in the Prometheus play. Yeah. One I, summer. So you got so. to be a frog and a bird? Yeah, <laughs> I did. I was Oh, it, it's uh, it's fascinating. Once you get into theater and you do form a kind of community, mm -hmm. uh, that's the amazing thing about the Genesis Guild. It forms in May and mm -hmm. dissolves in August, but yeah. people come back. Come people, and people come back. When you when you came for the comedian, we had all kinds of people coming back that year, the twenty fifth anniversary, and everyone yeah. who came in was given a tunic or robe and sat up in the audience and joined in the play. Well, um, yeah, and they've been coming back for 50 years, right? Is, oh, yeah. Isn't this, aren't well, you coming up on the 50th anniversary? 64th. 64th? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's what oh. I said. Oh. <laughs> that That is really amazing that a cultural institution in a community like this could survive for that long. Yeah, wow. it is, and it's always a test. Will it make it this year? But uh, the thing that interested me, too, about your book, which is one of the most exhaustive treatments I've run into for these three people and their plays, the structure of the play, the critical comment, and so on. But they came up from a socialist background in Davenport. Yes. And people don't realize that at one time Davenport had a socialist mayor, and yeah. socialist members of the city council. Right. That, that was that was in 1920, a little bit before these people were here, uh -huh. uh, were, were in Davenport. They had moved on by then. But, yes, the socialists did take over the city, the city council in 1920. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a, a gift from the German immigrants. Absolutely. 
Yeah. They were, uh, people who lived in Europe were kind of sick after centuries of authoritarian rule. And they were looking for a way for the average citizen to have a say in what was happening. Yes. And the path they took was socialism. Yes. But uh, so that's an interesting background in Davenport that most people don't know about. Right. Um, Davenport was really a happening place at the turn of the 20th century. There was a lot of theater here, a lot of lectures. Mark Twain came here, came to Davenport, and uh, a thousand people turned out. You obviously wouldn't see a thousand people to turn out today for anybody but a rock star or a rap star, I guess. But uh, lectures uh, got uh, big audiences. Teddy Roosevelt was here uh, for the election of 1910 to campaign for the Republican candidate. Thousands of people came out to, to what is now Vandeveer Park to hear him talk. Yeah. Uh, it, it didn't work. The Democrat was elected, but anyway, he was here. Uh, big stars uh, came to Bur- the British Opera House, like Billy Burke, uh, Eddie Foy, uh, Sarah yeah. Bernhardt came through here. Uh, it's very different now, uh, and and not just in Davenport. Yeah, that's you know? true. The world has changed a yeah. lot. But, you know, one of the names I was not familiar with was uh, Floyd Dell. Mm-hmm. I had, frankly, never heard of him. It, yeah, and, you know, that's that's very strange. Had you heard of Susan Glaspell? And, oh, yes. Yeah, Susan okay. I knew well in her and, plays. Yeah. And I'd heard of George Cram yeah. Cook, although just the name. That was it. It's been a mystery to me why Dell has remained so obscure. He published 11 novels, um, I think 15 or 16 one-act plays for both the Provincetown Players and the Liberal Club in Greenwich Village. He had a Broadway hit play in uh, 1928 called Little Accident that was made into two movies, two feature films. Uh, Part of it was he made a very distinct career move uh, in the 30s, uh, he went to work for the federal government and for the Works Progress Administration and let, later for the U.S. Information Agency. So he wasn't publishing as much in terms of book-length things, although he did give talks and write articles and book reviews. But th- that may be why that he kind of left the literary scene uh, to do government work uh, during the Depression and retired in 1947 and died in 1969. But, gosh, uh, there really needs to be a big biography of Dell done. He did so much. He wrote so much. I've, I've got a pretty complete bibliography on Dell in the book. You know, the, the depth of your research is astounding. I mean, you really have gone into this. Yeah, well, well, Don, you know, people ask me, how long did it take you to write this book? And I tell them 47 years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because I really got interested in Glassbook Cook and Dell when I was doing my dissertation and published sporadically on them, you know, through the, through the years. And um, then I did a book chapter for somebody on Davenport and Dell, kind of a mini book, really. And they told me I had to cut 4,000 words out of it. And <laughs> at that point, I realized this is a book. This is a book. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is a very complete one. And uh, George Cram Cook and Susan Glassbell, of course, I've read her plays. I'm mm-hmm. familiar with her. She wrote a Pulitzer Prize, I believe. She did, yes. And uh, 
So she's the one that if anyone remembers, yes. they remember her. Yes. Cook's literary output was not terribly uh, prodigious. He did five plays for the Provincetown, two of which he wrote with Glassbowl. Uh-huh. And and he did not, and he has you know two or three novels, a couple of them co-authored with Charles Eugene Banks. Uh, one of his novels, when when his novel The Balm of Life fail, failed to find a publisher, he kind of stepped back from novel writing and moved on to playwriting. But he was really more of a doer and a thinker and a, an inspirer and a catalyst for other people's work than he was. Uh, interested in doing his own work yeah yeah and that's important but you don't people don't remember you unless you put out the work well you know uh, i've often thought about that it's a good idea not to plan on being remembered yes because (laughs) you know the the waters close over you and within a generation of your death you're forgotten yeah almost unless you are a mass murderer or a prominent politician. Or Shakespeare. Or Sha- Well, Shakespeare will be around forever. Let's hope so. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, there's no one. The only person I think of like Shakespeare is Mozart. Hmm. Mozart, the melody just poured out of him. And in Shakespeare, the poetry mm-hmm. poured out of him. He was a, he was a working class writer. He worked for the theater and he wrote plays. What we, what he would do is take existing plays and rewrite them for the most mm-hmm. part. And sto- existing stories. Oh, yeah. yeah. And he was so good. I think it was Freud that said that Shakespeare never made a mistake in shaping a character. The characters are full-bodied and independent. A lot of writers just put themselves into characters. yeah. But Shakespeare didn't. They keep looking for one, and they think maybe in Barone might be a, uh, an image of Shakespeare in his early years, but otherwise those are all independent individuals. You know, it's interesting you should bring that up about Shakespeare not putting himself into his characters because today there's a feeling on a certain group of progressives that you know you need to be a native american to write about native american characters or hispanic to write about hispanic characters and somebody said you know shakespeare was never a teenage girl he was never a jewish moneylender in venice you know he was never an emperor in rome uh but somehow (laughs) you know he managed to make it work you know that that is an argument today yeah that really irritates me it's uh you know, you there are two things. There's the person and the person's works. And I tend not to mix the two. Right. I'm interested in the works, and the person may be an absolute jerk, but that's his problem. I, I agree with that, yeah. I think where the progressives are coming from is if, say, a non-Hispanic writes about Hispanic characters, they're appropriating somebody else's culture. I, I don't agree with that either, because unless you're writing an autobiography, you're appropriating somebody else and somebody else's culture. That's true. We, we've gotten very, very sensitive about those yes. things. Yes. But that's because we have a bad history. That's true. We have a bad history of uh, failing to integrate others in our country, 
And so there's a rebound on that, and we have to put up with it. That's just one of the, yep. one of the things we do. But uh, this is, when I read your book, I think, how did you have time for anything else? Well, Don, <laughs> remember the pandemic? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a sabbatical leave for the 2019-2020 uh, academic year, and the so I was I was here in the Quad Cities during the summer of 2019 uh, doing research, and although a lot of this research was already done, I have five file drawers full of notes <laughs> on oh. this topic. So um, I started, you know, writing in the fall, and was making good progress. And in the spring, in I think March, uh, everything shut down. You know, for the pandemic, uh, you couldn't even go out to dinner, but no meetings, uh, nothing, yeah. no distractions. So there was really nothing left to do but write this book. So that's how I had time. I was on sabbatical anyway, and then the pandemic freed, freed up my time even more. Yeah. So well, it's certainly the, re the research is evident uh, because I learn more about these people than I. Probably, Ever one or two. <laughs> yeah, pr probably ought to know. But uh, it is fascinating. It really is. And uh, to think it was all in Davenport. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is an amazing community. There, there are stories, not just in Davenport, but Rock Island, Moline, all around. And uh, Roll Tweet, who used to co-host this program right. with me, uh, kept complaining that nobody wrote a biography of Bettendorf, the man who yeah. made such a difference. He says, why doesn't somebody write that? So if you're not too busy, Marcia. <laughs> <laughs> I think that'd be pretty far down on my list. I've got a new book in progress called The Innocent Midwest, uh, Literature and Regional Identity Formation from uh, eight, 1793 to 1930. So, uh, so the, the new sabbatical, which will start as soon as I turn in my grades this semester, <laughs> I can hardly wait. Uh, we'll be we'll be focused on that book. Yeah, well, that's which of these people. Well, before I get to that, you got a full right to go to Brazil. I did. Yes, I taught down there. Uh, what graduate in courses. heaven's name inspired you to do that? Um, in the summer uh, of nineteen ninety. I was selected for a National Endowment for the Humanities seminar in New on theater in New York City. And while I w these NEH seminars usually choose 12 Americans and three people from other countries. And one of the persons from other co countries was a Brazilian woman, uh, Junia Alves, and we became good friends. And she said, um, why don't you apply for a Fulbright to my university. And I, I was newly married, had been married for three years at that time, and I just thought, oh, I don't know if I want to leave my husband. You know, it was a real concern. But then I sat down and made a list of all the things I do at UTC that I wouldn't have to do if I was in Brazil. And that was pretty <laughs> persuasive. So I applied, and I got the Fulbright. And then we've done research on a theater group uh, in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, called Grupo Galpão. And we published a book down there on them, on that group. So theater's been a big, big part of my career, and uh, I well, hope it know, always will be. But Marcia, 
I, I don't see Marsha Noe's name listed in many playbills except the Genesius Guild. Have you done other theater? As an actor? Yeah. No, uh, I think I'm better uh, better equipped as a writer than an, than an actor, uh, <laughs> although I did enjoy my summer at Genesius Guild uh, being a frog and a bird. <laughs> <laughs> And that's, I think, where I met Dee Canfield. Oh, yeah. She was in The Frogs also yeah. that year. That's a lot of close friendships have formed. Yes, uh, I'm sure. And that, But that's true of many community theater operations. When you mention writing plays and this constant writing of plays, back in those days, in the early part of the last century, that's one of the main things people did. Absolutely. Uh, almost every church, almost every fraternal group, every little organization put on plays. Yes, and to get back to the Germans and what a really key role they played in developing Davenport culture, uh, at Turner Hall, uh, they had a German theater that did German language plays. And my favorite anecdote about Floyd Dell is that uh, as a cub reporter uh, for the, I think it was for the Democrat he actually worked on two newspapers in Davenport, got fired from both. But <laughs> while he was working at one of the newspapers, uh, the drama the drama critic dropped out, so he got a job reviewing uh, plays in German at Turner Hall, even though he didn't speak or understand German. <laughs> but to be fair to Floyd Dell, he took somebody with him who did, this, friend, this socialist friend, Fritz Fuchter, who... Mm ultimately was one of the aldermen that got elected in 1920 as a socialist. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, that whole chapter of uh, Davenport's history is worth exploring. It, the, it's certainly, it's worth a book, not just about playwrights, mm-hmm. you know, in Davenport, but just a f- really thorough history of Davenport with an emphasis on the culture, the Germans, the the political aspects. Alan. Alice French, around 1900, was probably the most uh, well-paid writer in the country. She published as Octave Thanet, which was uh, one of those names that could be either male or female. And she wrote about German immigrants, their Mm -hmm. lives. And she, you could say she was appropriating their culture, but uh, she was writing about them, and I think that was important. Right, and uh, I'm not a huge... Octave Thunnett fan. She was she was pretty rigidly conservative, and oh, there yeah. there's some racist elements in some of her novels and some uh, misogynist elements. But if you, I think that her best work is in a book of stories called Stories of a Western Town, and the Western Town is Davenport, uh-huh. and uh, those aren't bad. Well, she was not a great writer. She was true, but she was very popular. We have a lot of popular authors today who are not great writers. That's true. They tend to be formulaic. Yes. But uh, you give the public kind of what they want. Yeah, yeah people don't like to work too hard, or some people don't. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think it's good to let the reader do the work, but and that's what our great authors do. You know, they don't lay it all out there. They let the reader figure things out for themselves. They, Arthur, a- they ask questions. They don't make statements. Arthur Davidson Fickey, I, as a poet, Yes. Of some substance. He yes. needed an editor, but he was really a very good poet. And it was his poem about Alice French or Octave Thanet. The princess poem, yeah. yeah My that, princess. 
Yeah, that's the one that really got my attention. Yeah. I did a yeah. program on her because of that. You know, Ficky was just born at the wrong time. If he'd been born maybe 50 years earlier, he could have been, you know, a really major poet. But poetry was changing when he came of age. He was of the Harvard class of 1904. And modernism, images poetry, uh, you know, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, William yeah. Carlos Williams. It was just a different kind of poetry. And Ficky didn't like it much. So he and his friend Witter Binner oh, yeah. did <laughs> affected a hoax. And they they wrote up some poems purportedly in the modernist mode and published them as Spectra. Yeah. And a lot of people <laughs> took them seriously. Yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> but uh Edna St. Vincent Millay was very much in love with Arthur Davis. Yes, and also with Floyd Dell and Edmund Wilson. In fact, Edmund Wilson said her lovers ought to form an alumni association. (laughs) Several of them were at her wedding to uh, Eugene Bossavan, including Dell. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And she was in the Provincetown Players. She wrote plays for them and uh, was really a very fine actress. She was in a couple of Floyd Dell's plays. You know, the uh, Provincetown players really shaped the future of American theater. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, they were only together for what? Eight years. Eight years, yeah, yeah, a short period of time. But uh, because Eugene O'Neill was in their presence, all of a sudden they got massive attention. Right. I think the Harry Ape was his first... uh, the first big one, yeah, yeah. and and Emperor, the Emperor Jones was yeah. the one that went to Broadway, and yeah. uh, it, it kind of turned the theater in a different direction. It turned the Provincetown players in a different direction because Cook always wanted, you know, process the process of play acting is and making is what's important and. When the Emperor Jones went to Broadway, then other people said, well, maybe my play should go to Broadway. So yeah. the emphasis shifted from process to product and that kind of, uh, you know. Well, you know, it's but it is amazing because that process is not a particularly efficient one for producing great plays. But the fact that it did churn out some remarkable people, especially Eugene O'Neill. Yeah to get people to write, to start to write. Writing is um, is a chore for me, but I appreciate good writing in almost any form, uh, poetry, uh, biography. I'm not a great writer, uh, reader of novels. I love, I love uh, nonfiction, factual mm-hmm. stuff, but that's just my twisted nature. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people prefer, you know, to learn more about the world around them through books than to deal with imaginative literature, and, and that's fine. Um, one thing you can say for novel writing is that there is replicated research that shows that people who read novels are more empathetic, and I think we need a lot more empathy in society oh, today. Yeah. That's for sure. And actually, sometimes novels can open your eyes in a way that nonfiction doesn't. That's true. Because uh, there are two things at work, your reason and your emotions. And when you get those two things on the same track, then the train picks up. It really is great, which is why I like classical music, because 
The sound of it is wonderful, but then as you listen into it, you can hear the structure. Mm -hmm. And the more you listen to a piece, the more of that you get, and the greater your appreciation grows. Yeah, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and that, that, I guess it's the same thing for literature. Well, you have certainly given us a deep look into three people that we ought to know more about. And I must say, Floyd Dell, George Cram Cook, and Susan Glaspell, how they transformed American theater. Marsha Noe, thank you very much for writing that. Well, well, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Uh, and thanks for inviting me to come and chat with you today. It's been a real pleasure, Don. Well, it's always good to see you again. Uh, an old Genesian never yes. goes away. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that'll do it for now. Uh, this will be a program that we will air a little bit later on after uh, Marsha's visit here. But uh, Rebecca and I will be back next week, and we hope you will too for another episode of Scribbles.